In the first of two episodes this October, we're at the House of the Seven Gables in Salem, Massachusetts. In the garden, there's a harbor view, an ocean breeze, and we're surrounded by historic homes. But you can barely notice all of that because we're next to the most iconically spooky house that's inspired books, art, and film. It's a 350-year-old mansion with black paint, large glass windows, and tall gables that cross each other. Even if you've never been here, this home looks familiar. Welcome to Someone Lived Here, a podcast about the places people called home. I'm your host, Kendra Gaylord. Before the House of the Seven Gables was the House of the Seven Gables, it was a captain's home. As Captain John Turner's wealth grew, so did the home. But it's hard to know if this house would still be standing here today, if it wasn't immortalized by Nathaniel Hawthorne. When his novel was published, the house had been standing for 180 years, and Hawthorne was writing to an imaginary version of the house that he'd never seen for himself. It was his cousin Susanna who invited him in, told him what the home once looked like, and shared her stories. I want to learn a little bit more about Susanna Ingersoll, and we're going to do that in the front parlor. The parlor and the bedroom upstairs were added in 1677, and I'm shocked at how big and airy it feels. Nearly 10-foot ceilings in a 17th century house means you were rich, rich. But after three generations, the Turners lost the house, and it was sold to Samuel Ingersoll. We're now going to talk with David Moffat. He's a senior historic interpreter and lead researcher at the House of the Seven Gables. The house is inherited by his daughter, Susanna. She never marries. We think that decision is influenced by the fact that if she married, she would lose her ownership of her property. This house would become her husband's. Maybe she's worried about marrying some blackguard that's going to take her property and leave her with nothing. But she also wants that control. You know, she's the only surviving child out of six. And she tells her minister that this house feels like her prison, right around the time her mother passes away in 1811 and she inherits the property. But she goes on to own it until 1858. But it's Susanna who really influences the House of the Seven Gables, the novel. Because Hawthorne comes to visit her, plays cards, talks to her about family history, and gets these ideas about this older, unmarried woman living in a big mansion working to try and save it, seems to draw a lot on his cousin's real-life experiences. So she plays a really crucial role in this house's history. Now, unlike how I envisioned the home in the book, this room isn't dark. And what's hidden behind a small cupboard door is, in fact, not spooky, but very fun. This bar, or bow fat, is the technical term, that's about 300 years old. So it's this carved cabinet got columns and a shell made of pine. In the center, there's a bright blue and gold reconstruction of what that looked like originally. Gold leaf and lacquer on the edges of the shelves, this deep Prussian blue paint. And we think of the Puritans as not being a lot of fun. You know, John Turner II is building this near the end of the Puritan era in New England in the 1720s and 30s, but he's still a Puritan. He goes to the Puritan church, and Puritans drank. They had taverns. They had parties. They played cards. They sang songs. You know, they weren't the boring people that we think of them as, thanks to people like Nathaniel Hawthorne. But they'd have parties in here. They'd serve mixed drinks. And it's decorated. This room is designed to be their entertaining room. It's very vibrant, bright, floral wallpaper. 
that we also think of the Puritans as being very plain and drab. It's not the case. If they could afford nice colors like the Turners could, you bet they had really colorful clothes and colorful interiors. We're now going to head over to the dining room. And so we've got a dining room from the late 1600s, set up today as it would have looked in the late 1700s. It's the second generation of Turners, so when John Turner II owns the house, that put in all this Georgian-style paneling. And it's an early Georgian interior. We date it to about 1720. And it had this green coloring to it, verdigris, that gets its color from oxidized copper. And so you have this put in lavishing in this nice, fancy, new English interior style. It's the third generation that loses the money, so you get the Ingersolls here after the war. The Ingersolls are living here in this period where Salem is this cosmopolitan international trading port where merchants are leaving and traveling to places like France and Russia and Italy and South Africa and Mauritius and Oman, India and China, the Philippines, Indonesia, you name it, Salem was sending ships there if it could be got to by water in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And there's a very interesting feature in this room. As part of the Georgian paneling, there's a door for a closet. It serves as a firewood closet. They need to find somewhere to store these mountains of firewood they're burning to keep the house warm. It's today a secret passageway, a secret staircase that goes through the reconstructed chimney. And so for over a century, people have been climbing the secret stairs. And if you're feeling adventurous today, you can climb up if you'd like. Yeah, I do. <laughs> so you can head up, I'll follow this you up. This is amazing. These stairs are surrounded by bricks, and that's because we're inside the center chimney. And if you're wondering why you would put stairs in a chimney, the answer is you wouldn't, unless you wanted to get people talking. And 110 years ago, when Caroline Emerton was making the home a destination, that's exactly what she wanted to do. I'm excited to tell you more about Caroline, but first I think we should talk about the gable that started it all. And this was the attic. We're on the third floor. It's an express that takes us from the first right up to the third. This was a storage area. It's not a really public part of the house. You don't often have a dinner party and invite people up to your attic to look at the rafters. So it didn't get wallpaper or Georgian paneling. And so when we head to the other side of the attic, it's the most original part of the structure. And we'll go through a little passage right here, but the rest of the house gets larger after this. We're gonna stop the, uh, the crouching part. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be wow. able to stand up straight. We're up in the attic. This is my favorite part of the house, personally, because we're looking at the original construction. These are boards that John and Elizabeth Turner would have seen in 1668. And there are generations of shingle nails still poking out through them. We did dendrochronology, so we dated the beams based on the tree rings, found out that the rafter there was an oak tree that started growing in 1485. And the end of the room has a big triangular shape because it's one of the gables. That's what gives the house its name. These big peaks are there because the roofs are steep. They want to keep rain and snow from gathering on top of the house. When the house was first constructed, it looks like a wealthy New Englander's house. There are ten houses in Salem, give or take one or two, that date to the 1600s. Most of them look something like this. A lot of them are even about half that size. 
Well, then the Turners add on a back lean-to, a feature a lot of those houses have as well. It's designed to help carry wind over the structure, use it as a back uh, storage area and workshop. And then in 1677, the house is completed to the size that it is now, with a big wing on the front. And as we've learned time and time again on this podcast, nothing stays the same, especially with a house. The house changes again quite radically in 1794. We know from the Ingersoll's minister that in that year, Samuel Ingersoll took off the back part of the house. He'd lived here for about a dozen years. This back section with the lean-to and summer kitchen was probably rotting away, probably had a dirt floor. And then he takes off the gables that aren't actually part of the structure, the facade gables. So you end up with a big L-shaped house, only three gables left at the ends of the walls. So throughout the 1800s, it's just got three gables. Throughout the entire life of Nathaniel Hawthorne, the house never has seven gables. So why on earth does he write the House of the Seven Gables? His cousin Susanna was 10 when her father made those changes. So she had really strong childhood memories growing up in this old-fashioned, weird-looking house with seven gables. She brought Hawthorne up to the attic in 1840, showed him specifically where those gables had been, which her father removed. That strikes his imagination. He writes in a letter, The House of the Seven Gables. I feel like I should make something of that idea. Ten years later, he writes this novel where this grand old decaying house stands in for the decline and greed of the Pynchon family at the heart of the story. This all gives Caroline Emerton a headache in the early 1900s because she just bought a three-gabled house, wants to sell tickets to the House of the Seven Gables, and of course in that period it's quite in vogue to take early houses, return them to the way they imagined they would have looked. So Chandler helps to rebuild the back section how they imagine it might have looked in the 1600s, to add those gables and the dormer back onto the front. Joseph Chandler was an architect and did historic restorations. Another home built by Joseph Chandler was the home of A. Pyatt Andrew, Red Roof. That might sound familiar from last episode. It was that home and the company inside of it that inspired Henry Davis Sleeper to build Boatport. Now let's get back to the house at hand. It was really Caroline Emerton's passion and her bank account that made this house what it is today. She had first visited the house in her early teens. Here's an account from her book, The Chronicles of Three Old Houses. Quote, I went there with a party of young people, and I well remember the thrill that the gaunt old house gave me when I first caught sight of it. We entered the empty house with its echoing rooms. I remember the circular cupboard in the parlor with its shell-like top. And I remember in the attic the sketchy outlines of two vanished gables on the sloping walls. They were made by the patching of the boards when the gables were removed and were like shadowy ghosts haunting the scene of their past life. Unquote. It wasn't just the gables that were brought back. Parts of the home were changed to connect it more closely to the book. Before Emerton, there wasn't a little storefront in the home, but it was added to look like the little shop run by Hepzibah Pynchon. And those secret stairs were added because it adds mystery. And it's also really fun. We're now going to check out another room that connects with the book. But Caroline Emerton had another use for it. And watch the door frame. And we emerge from that dark attic to this very light room here on the second floor, the accounting room. It's like the home office. This is where the Turners and then later the Ingersolls are doing the business side of the shipping trade. This is a room that Nathaniel Hawthorne uses in the novel. 
in the opening of the House of the Seven Gables, Colonel Pynchon, this rich merchant, very similar guy to someone like John Turner I in real life, well, he wants a piece of land with a beautiful freshwater well on it. And so what does he do? He accuses the poor carpenter who lives on it, being a wizard. The carpenter is sent to the gallows and hanged during the witch trials, and he calls out to him, Pynchon, God will give you blood to drink. Well, Pynchon's not superstitious. He builds his seven-gabled mansion. In fact, he uses the uh, carpenter's son to build the house for him. And then he's found locked in his accounting room by his servants when he throws a big housewarming party, dead. Blood covering his beard and shirt, seeming to make the prophecy come true. And so that's the opening chapter of Hawthorne's The House of the Seven Gables would have taken place in this accounting room if it were to actually have taken place in the house. And it's no coincidence that Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote about the ramifications of the Salem witch trials. John Hawthorne was his great-great-grandfather and Susanna's great-grandfather. He was one of the lead judges at the Salem witch trials, and it was his leading questioning of Rebecca Nurse and Bridget Bishop that often stands out, like this line of questioning of Bridget Bishop, quote, how can you know you are no witch and yet not know what a witch is, end quote. Later this month, we're going to go to the Rebecca Nurse homestead and hear more about the witch trials and her story. So if you want more witch stuff, it's coming. Nathaniel Hawthorne is writing this book, trying to understand the connection between his family's past and their present. And he's thinking, what does it mean that she lives in this house that's from generations ago? What does it mean that we live in this world inherited from our ancestors? He feels quite a bit of guilt about his family's place in history. And he writes this novel about a family wrestling with that becomes a bestseller. It's incredibly popular. It's just a year after The Scarlet Letter. Together, they're bestsellers. They don't compare at all to some of the women writers of the time, like uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who Hawthorne's um, House of the Seven Gables sells 67,000 copies, I think. Uncle Tom's Cabin sells 300,000. Um, so not quite in that stratosphere of popularity, but incredibly well-known. I really appreciate that David mentioned the female bestsellers of the time, because I think it would have really annoyed Hawthorne. He wrote this in a letter to his editor, quote, America is now wholly given over to a damn mob of scribbling women, and I should have no chance of success while the public taste is occupied with their trash and should be ashamed of myself if I did succeed, unquote. Also, in that letter, he had actually censored the word damned. Now we're going to head out of the accounting room. I mentioned that that space didn't used to be part of the museum, and neither did this next room. That's because Caroline Emerton had two very different missions when restoring the House of the Seven Gables. Because these two spaces, the accounting room we were just in, and this large empty room that we're in now, were used as housing for the social workers. Caroline Emerton had been on a committee working to get a settlement house in Salem. Settlement houses were popularized in the U.S. by Jane Addams after a visit to London. The house she built in 1889 was called Hull House, and it provided kindergarten, a nursery, bathrooms, and classes to Chicago's large immigrant population. A big piece of Jane Addams's model was to then have middle and upper class social workers and volunteers research and fight for legislative reform. This idea made its way to Salem. Caroline Emerton wrote in her book, quote, In passing and repassing the House of the Seven Gables, the idea occurred to me that the old house would have many advantages as a settlement headquarters, 
This was two small bedrooms. People were living here. They'd get up in the morning and go teach English or kindergarten, come back and sleep in the house of the Seven Gables at night. We're going to see one more bedroom up here and go back in time once more. And so it's one of the largest rooms I've ever seen in the house from that period. It's got huge dimensions in addition to the high ceiling. John Turner II adds on a new layer of wall. Adds a little bit of insulation, but he thinks his dad's style's gotten old-fashioned. He wants crown molding, paneling, window seats. This is the size that the windows were in the early 1700s. We're talking huge 10 over 15 paned windows. Got these Queen Anne chairs, these early 18th century dressers, and then a reproduction of what the Turner's bed looked like. The bed has a canopy with curtains around the sides and a bright red bedspread. And it was worth 42 pounds, which is an enormous amount of money in 1742. That is, um, compared to most people's beds, maybe five, seven pounds. The whole estate adds up to 36,000 pounds. So you're talking about incredible wealth, a thousand times what someone might make in a year. And how did they make that much money? We talked before about John Turner and his son being captains and merchants. I often get caught in the trap of the word merchant, and it's worth being more curious about what someone was trading and the implications of that. And the trade that the Turners are engaging in is all about slavery. They're bringing dried codfish down to the plantations in Barbados, which becomes the main food that enslaved people are eating. In exchange, they're getting sugar, which is produced and manufactured with slave labor, They're distilling it into rum, which is sometimes sold on the coast of Africa in exchange for enslaved people. And we know that there were enslaved people living at the House of the Seven Gables. We know about these figures, the worth of the bed, things like that, from the probate inventory of when John Turner II dies. And it's about 15 pages of a list of what he owns. But that document also tells us that three enslaved people were living in this house. In 1742... Titus, Rebecca, and Lewis. We know from other documents that there was a woman named Phyllis who was enslaved by the Turners in 1731. And then in the 1750s and 60s, Mary Turner had an enslaved woman named Jane. We know a little bit about the lives of the five people who were enslaved here. Titus and Phyllis were married to each other. Lewis was inherited by one of John Turner II's daughters, Eunice. And we know that Titus and Lewis both came down with smallpox in the 1770s, that Lewis died, but Titus survived. So there's little tiny pieces we can see to try and find some of the humanity of these people who were enslaved here. But unfortunately, because of their status in the society, we don't know a lot about them. Nathaniel Hawthorne started writing The House of the Seven Gables in 1850. The same year, Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Act that required free states to assist in returning any escaped enslaved people. It was in that same year that Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote to an editor with her plan to write Uncle Tom's Cabin. Quote, I feel now that the time has come when even a woman or a child who can speak a word for freedom and humanity is bound to speak. I hope every woman who can write will not be silent. Unquote. Many of his neighbors and friends in Concord were focused on abolition, and the Fugitive Slave Act galvanized them. But in the House of the Seven Gables, Nathaniel Hawthorne is looking at New England's past, focusing on guilt surrounding a witch trial that happened 150 years ago, 
instead of manhunts that were happening right then. We're going to leave the house now. And as we head outside, you can see how many houses are on this property. Throughout the early 1900s, historic houses throughout Salem were moved here, making a type of historic house campus, one of which is Nathaniel Hawthorne's birthplace. Before we leave, I want to hear a bit about how this house handles Halloween with Julie Arison Bishop, the community engagement director here. From the exterior of our historic site, it really fits the mold for Halloween. It's the the black house, the pointed gables. In the evening, it's kind of that spooky feel that you get when you walk around the site. But when you cross the threshold, people are really introduced to an authentic history here in Salem that stretches back, you know, so much of what we share is based on like the 353 years the house was built. And it's such a wonderful opportunity for us to share an authentic side of Salem and an authentic history in a setting that really fits the aesthetic of what Salem is for haunted happenings and Halloween. And I would encourage visitors who are coming to Salem for Halloween and haunted happenings to Certainly have fun, enjoy the community, uh, but certainly find places where you can get some of that real and authentic history and learn Salem's story to enhance your Halloween experience in Salem. And if you're wondering what happened to the Settlement Association, it's still going strong. And today what we do with our settlement programming is we provide adult ESL and citizenship classes. We have the opportunity to serve... um, I think we serve anywhere from 100 to 150 people kind of each semester with our English as a Second Language and Citizenship programming. We often host a naturalization ceremony here at the House of the Seven Gables, so it's a really magical opportunity to become a citizen in front of this icon of American history. And what I love about the House of the Seven Gables is how reality and fiction have weaved around each other to make a house that's like no other. Thank you for listening to Someone Lived Here. I'm your host, Kendra Gaylord. I have a few fun announcements, so stick around. First off, I would highly recommend you see this house. It's here all year, not just October. In the event that you ever visit the site, take a look at the calligraphy on the walls of the Nathaniel Hawthorne birthplace. It was done by my mom, Susan Kapuscinski Gaylord, in 2011. And if you like spooky, witchy things, I made a YouTube video of the best witch houses in movies and TV. It even has a home inspired by the House of the Seven Gables. You can find that on my YouTube channel, Kendra from Someone Lived Here. I also want to say hi and thank you to all of our new listeners from TikTok. And if you didn't know we had a TikTok, it's at Kendra Gaylord. I include a lot of photo research and videos from when I recorded the episodes. Thank you to David Moffat for the wonderful tour and Julie Arison Bishop for bringing this all together. Tim Cahill created our music. Next, next Monday, I'll be at the Rebecca Nurse Homestead. If you have any questions or thoughts about this episode, you can comment on the blog post at someonelivedhere.com. And if you like the show, keep me encouraged and write a review on Apple Podcast. I think that's all the announcements. Thanks, everybody, for listening.